0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In Season 1 of this podcast, I released a series titled Sweetheart Killers, where I presented cases of couples who are forever linked to one another for both love and murder. In that series, I detailed the case of Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate. In 1958, 19-year-old Starkweather went on a killing spree that shocked the nation. He took his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol, with him. The story of that crime spree has become a legend in true crime history, and Starkweather and Fugate Have been portrayed as villains on par with Bonnie and Clyde. In this episode, I revisit this case by speaking with best-selling true crime author Harry McLean. In his new book, Starkweather, the untold story of the killing spree that changed America, he takes a comprehensive look at this case and comes to some new conclusions about Carol Fugate's guilt or innocence in the murders. Harry McLean has been one of my favorite true crime authors since I first read his Edgar Award-winning true crime book, In Broad Daylight, in the late 1980s. In Broad Daylight was made into a television movie in 1991 and was Harry McLean's first book. I have really been looking forward to speaking with Harry about his new book and getting his perspective on the Charles Starkweather case. Let's go now to that conversation. So I am talking with author Harry McLean, and I'm very excited about this for a couple of reasons. One, because I am a big fan of your books. I have been for a long time. And so when they asked me, uh, do you want to you know, interview this author? And I'm like... Of course. <laughs> how is that possible? Because in broad daylight, that was one of my all time favorite true crime books. I'm a big true crime book uh, reader. Um, and also Once Upon a Time, which was the Eileen Franklin case. So I know how detailed you get in these books and how much research you do. And uh, I've always been a, you know, a big fan. So first of all, I just want to thank you and welcome you to the show.
0: It's my pleasure to be here, and thanks for the compliments. I always like uh, dedicated readers. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, um, okay. So the first thing, I found out a couple of things about you besides the books that you've written, and but also your career. So you had a distinguished career as an attorney and a law professor before you became a best-selling author. And these kind of things always intrigue me because when somebody— Uh, maybe takes a different path than maybe they had planned to. Of course, this may have been something you always wanted to do. I don't know. That's what I want to know. Before, you became a best-selling author of these nonfiction crime books, and also, I found out just recently, a novel. So how did you transition from that career that you had previously in law to becoming an author?
0: Well, I I kind of... To back up a little bit, I kind of reached the end of the the path that, that interested me in law. I had done, I was general counsel of the Peace Corps in the Carter administration. I'd been deputy attorney general and many, many provision, many jobs like that in the public sector. One couple years in the private sector. After about 15 years, you know, the old dream that most lawyers have is um, I'm going to write a book. And the only thing I'd written other than legal stuff was a short story in college. And I kind of kept telling myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And then came across this story in Northwest Missouri, where they had killed a town bully uh, after he had terrorized them for 20 years, killed them on the main street of town. And there'd been no prosecutions. And I thought, that's it. That's the, that's the story for you. And, um, I drove across the, the plains one day and, and drove into town. And five years later, I had a book published. And um, I didn't switch completely from one to the other. I kept working as an arbitrator, uh, which is like a private judge in civil and, and labor disputes. So I kind of did that and supported myself somewhat while I was looking for true crime stories that, that. uh that appealed to me. So I kind of kept both of them going. One's left brain, the other's right brain. But I was able to get them to connect for quite a while.
1: That's amazing to me because that was your first book. And that was a bestseller. It, I believe, was turned into a, a t- television movie. Is that correct?
0: Television movies. It was a single movie, to uh, NBC. And it starred Brian Denny yes. as the bad guy, mm-hmm. as the bully. And he did a great job. It also had Marsha Gay Harden. And uh, Leachman in it. It was, it was an excellent show, and actually, you can find it on on YouTube today. You
1: know, that had to be kind of a little bit mind blowing (laughs) in your first book. It's you know, it gets this kind of attention, but it was so, it was so good. And also, this case that case was just so wild like, it was just something that you're like, I can see why that maybe drew you to want to tell that story, just the whole circumstances behind it. But the question I also have that so, was it? true crime kind of stories, was that always like something you were interested in? Or was it just that story in particular that grabbed your attention?
0: Well, you know, I was I was affected by a lot of people by In Cold Blood. And we know that that's now called narrative nonfiction or nonfiction or the nonfiction novel. That struck me quite hard. I had a both a legal reaction to it and kind of a personal reaction to it. And the, the mixture of Bringing the law down on human behavior uh, really appealed to me. Of course, I always wanted to write a novel. Everybody wants to write a novel. It seems to me at one point or another in their life. Um, but the true crime thing kind of fit, kind of fit my personality and, and fit my interests because it had the legal structure in it and how that functioned, how it operated. But also under the nonfiction novel rubric, you're allowed some. Some uh, discretion, some flexibility in how you present a story. you can use you can use fiction techniques in it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a straight newspaper story. so that that mixture, of those two appeal to me, yeah.
1: I think that's probably why I like your writing so much because it does read like a novel, but you know it's it's true. And obviously, very, very detailed as far as the research. Like you said, this the first book took you five years. So, you know, it's not just something you, Read a couple articles and dash off. There's a lot. And I want to get to your new book because of that. Um, So Starkweather, your new book, has it been released yet?
0: Yeah, it was released uh, actually a week ago today on the 28th.
1: This book is a comprehensive look at the 1958 uh, spree murders committed by 19-year-old Charles Starkweather. Now, this case has become almost like folklore in true crime history. Um, And the questions I have first about this, it's a 65 year old case. And what compelled you specifically to want to write about this case? And also, the second part of that question is, was it difficult to research a crime that happened so long ago? I mean, I know there's a lot about it, but was it still the details that you were trying to get for this, something maybe that we didn't know about or hadn't heard before? Was that difficult to find?
0: It, your first question is why now is an interesting one, and I don't think there's a, a quick answer to it or an easy answer, but uh, Starkweather, first of all, he was accompanied by uh, his girlfriend, Carol Fugate, who was 14 at the time. He was 19, and um, that has been that their crime spree, which involved 10 murders uh, over Nebraska and Wyoming in January 1958 has been romanticized uh, by movies, Badlands, and the Murder in the Heartland was a series that did it, um, and songs. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song, uh, an album called Stark Weather, and the song on there is just quite powerful.
1: Jumping in for a quick correction. Harry just misspoke here. He knows very well, as do I, and probably you, that Bruce Springsteen's album is titled Nebraska.
0: And books. There have been 12 books written on it. So it, it is a part of the lore. And my sense was, well, for, second of all, the, the romanticism of it is was one reason I was pulled to it. Because um, they've done kind of a Bonnie and Clyde with the two of them. Mm-hmm. And that's not, it's not a romantic adventure uh, at all. It was a bloody, cruel, vicious uh, spree. And that's the way it needs to be looked at in history and in my view, anyway. Mm -hmm. And the second of all was that I'm from Lincoln. Um, I knew some of the victims of Starkweather. My brother went to school with Starkweather. Mm -hmm. I knew where he grew up, I knew where he hung out. Uh, So I had a feel for Nebraska Um, in 1958. I was a couple years younger than Charlie. So the setting was really familiar to me. And I think the setting is a big part of the impact of the story because it's the heartland. It's Lincoln, Nebraska. It's not L.A. or Brooklyn or the Bronx or something that you think of with a lot of street crime or that sort of crime. And so it was a shock that way. And I wanted to tell the story, take the romanticism out of it. What were the facts? And I wanted to push it further than it had been pushed. Um, it's easy story to exploit because stark weather looks kind of like james dean uh carol was 14 cute a little rough so it made it made good optics to use today's language mm-hmm. and uh so the fact that i was from there and over the years i'd kind of walked up to it several times in between other books and thought you know I how to write that story mm-hmm. and i kind of um veered away from it and the reasons for that are are kind of complicated but it was it was going to be a personal journey for me let's put it that way if i did it because i was going to go back into my own boyhood there and so i kind of veered away from and then one day february 2020 carol fugate charlie just as a factual matter was executed in the electric chair 15 months after his conviction in 1958 carol was tried in the fall of 58, found guilty of felony murder and, and sentenced to life in prison. So she got out after 17 years and she's, she's alive uh, today. And in February, 2020, she had applied for a pardon in uh, 2018, it was turned down in February of 2020 and that you know i saw her on on the clips on uh, tv and that's what really caught my interest because i looked at her for the first time um and said this we really don't know what this girl did we don't know she was convicted yeah jury found her guilty but we no one has ever really looked at her guilt or innocence in these 10 murders Mm -hmm. and um you know i do that for a living i said as an I, i was a juvenile court magistrate judge earlier in my career as an arbitrator. Now I sort out questions like guilt or innocence Mm -hmm. for for a living. I mean, for what, what happened here, who's telling the truth between these two people. So I thought I'm going to bring those skills to the question of Carol Fugate's guilt or innocence, Mm -hmm. which, like I say, had never really been thoroughly investigated, uh, and so that was that was kind of the hook that got me into it, was I'm going to take a look. because I mean, I've heard about her, obviously, for three years. And I know that everyone thinks she's guilty. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement thought she was guilty. The newspapers convicted her with almost no no evidence. Um, so that's that's why I got into it. And it it is kind of the beginning. If you say why is it important historically? It's in my view, he's the first modern. Uh, he's the first mass murderer in modern America, mm-hmm. um, and by that I mean television America. People in 1958, uh, television had just hit when the Starkweather spree went uh, happened, and the two of them connected in a way that we live with today. The the effects of the of the connection between violence and television. It's it's an unholy alliance. It's extremely powerful. It's extremely popular. I mean, look at what's on uh, TV every day and in the movies and in the books. And this is where it started. There weren't really any mass murderers like Charlie prior to 1958. And this kind of, in my view, kicked off the whole mass murder scene that we're living with today. Um, I, I won't go into all the reasons behind that, but that's that's a main theme in the book so that's if that's if there's any validity to that theme it needs to be explored as something that contributed to these constant day almost daily mass murders that we've learned to live with today yeah it was a problem Was six years old almost everybody was dead and that would you know if i had done it earlier that wouldn't have been quite the problem it was were a lot of documents, a lot of trial transcripts. There were there were memoirs. Um, the people that were alive when it happened that were mainly children or teenagers. There were a lot of those people around to talk about the impact of it. But the guilt or innocence issue really re- did uh, rely on documents, a lot of which had you know I've had never been had not seen the light of day before, which was real. Uh, helpful to me, and um, one of the problems was that you know both of them had trials. Both Carol and Charlie had trials, and the evidence was missing. I mean, the the evidence in the trials was by and large missing. Uh, they had the rifles and some other items, uh, purses and wallets, and photographs and so forth. But the the critical evidence in particularly Carol's trial was gone and I, I would have to go into the long explanation and say what that evidence was but it was critical to determining her guilt or innocence and uh, you know I went to the police department Supreme Court of Colorado County Sheriff all those places and none of them none of them had it mm. and it's uh, that's what really made made uh, life difficult because some issues would have been greatly impacted had I been able to see the evidence in the trial. Huh.
1: That that's interesting that it was that it was missing. I mean, I know that that happens, but this is such an infamous case, and it was such a big story even then. You would think that that would be preserved. Yeah. You know. Is- I you know I think
0: one of these days they're going to tear down an old annex in Lincoln, and it's going to be found in some boxes in the basement. Yeah. Um. I. That's the way these things. You know. Or not, I doubt that it was actually thrown out. It's just some clerk at some point said, I'm gonna stick these things over there yeah. and I'm not gonna mark the boxes. And that's the where way. they are, but I couldn't find them. Yeah.
1: Give it them over here with the Christmas decorations or something. What is this box? I don't know. Exactly. Just stick it over there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Gosh, that's 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 crazy. Yeah, that had to be a little bit frustrating. one of the, the things about the book that i noticed is that you have the accounts uh i think it was charlie's account and charlie's accounts it, they they changed and carol seemed to stay somewhat the same when they explained what happened or the the details of of what happened which you've stitched together in the book are first hand accounts of the murder spree from both charlie's side and then alternately carol's side and I was just, you know, wondering why did you choose to present it that way? And what did that inform you about if once you did?
0: Well, um, let me just back up a little bit. The first murders were of Carol's mother, stepfather, and little sister. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear that Charlie killed all three of them, although he debates that later on. But um the question always was, was Carol there? When he murdered her parents, and there's a lot of reasons why that's important, which is another area. But uh, then it goes on, and they go out to another small town, and, and and one of his he kills one of his friends, and then they're picked up by um, when they're hitchhiking, and there's uh, the two people are killed there, and it kind of goes on from there. And the problem was my I, I wrote I, I wrote it, and my editor said, "No, you you have to put the reader in the car with the." Um, with the people, you know, they've got to they've got to feel the story. They got to feel the atmosphere and the and you know, the killing and all that stuff. And I said, well, I can't do that because mm-hmm. there's two different versions um, for for every murder, mm-hmm. and I can't resolve them. If I try and resolve them in the course of describing them, it's going to be boring as hell. So she said this, he said that. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just tell it from each side. Uh, each murder from each perspective. And it'll help me develop not only the story, but the personalities of the people as you see how they describe these murders. Mm. And uh, and you're right, Charlie um, initially confessed to all the murders and said Carol had nothing to do with it. And Carol has always taken the position that she was a hostage. Um, Charlie then changes his story And starts implicating Carol in various of the murders. And um, it keeps, the story keeps evolving as time goes on and he goes to trial until by the time Carol comes to trial, she's gone from not having anything to do with anything to being responsible for three murders. And so you kind of had to keep the stories separate that way and it's kind of like a Rashomon thing kind of depends what it looks like Mm -hmm. depending where you're where you're standing and it was it was actually kind of interesting to write it that way because I could place them right next to each other and see how they evolved
1: so that's the thing I think sometimes people forget the age difference he was 19 so you know legally he was an adult Uh, she was 14 and uh, they they had had this ongoing relationship for a while, at least it was you know over a year um, or more. And but I think that people forget about like maybe the influence that he might have had on her or the other way around. But I do think that their relationship, no matter what you think about how culpable Carol was or not, I just I think her relationship with Charlie was really integral to what unfolded. Um, both of them, you, you set this up at the beginning of the book, which is really interesting about their life histories. And they both had elements of their life histories and their personalities that drew them together in the first place. So I wanted to ask you if you had come to any conclusions about or can talk about how the relationship may have spurred Charlie to to set this all in motion.
0: Um, yeah, well, Carol came from a convicted pedophile and a drunk and violent and uh never was employed. she went to six different schools in five years. So she was a she was a rough kid. I mean, and Charlie, and when she met Charlie, she was twelve, which is mm. you have to keep in mind through all discussions of her that she was a child. um and the jury, I mean, it was you couldn't get the world to do it back then because they saw her as a murderer. But what we know about children today and the level of brain development uh, in a twelve year old is pretty. Yeah, I mean they're not legal in any in the eyes of the law. They can't vote or or buy alcohol or anything. And she was a child when when she met Charlie. And you're right, he impacted her. And the theory that I've come up with with the help of various psychologists is what they call kind of the sitting ducks theory. And it's a usually a girl that is has come from an abuse family, uh, an abusive situation, and wants to be needs to be cared for and focused on and number one in somebody's life that's that's the feeling that she wants mm-hmm. and they're sitting ducks for somebody like charlie that's where the phrase comes from because charlie instinctively in guys uh sense when a girl or a woman is in that situation where they that's that's what they need and it's how you get in it's how women get into these entangled relationships that they can't get out of because the one thing the guy does is continually assure them that he loves them and that, you know, she's the most important thing to him. And so that was kind of the beginning nature of the relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. You point this out, and I don't know that people know this. I think we, we make assumptions when we, we see something like this happen. And he was so young and he, he was so violent that we think, oh, he must have come from a very you know horribly abusive background or there must have been something, you know, majorly off about his upbringing, but we don't see that. We see that his family was pretty, um, that he was close to his mother and his father, and he cared for them both very deeply. And he had good relationships with his siblings, pretty much, and and all of that. So he had that, but the problem that he had was being bullied. You read any descriptions of him. He had several things that caused him to be bullied in school, but Carol accepted him, I think so. We have the the person who wants to be rescued, and I think you have in Charlie, the person who wants to be the hero. But that kind of spun out into something darker. Can you talk about that a little bit about what um, Charlie's ideas were of how he was going to make a name for himself or become this hero in his own life? I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, the the bullying thing is just to explore that a little bit. He was five foot five. The average adult male was five foot eight in those days. <clears throat> And uh, he had flaming red hair, thick flaming red hair that he got from his mother. And he was bow legged and had a lisp. Uh, he got rid of the lisp eventually, but in his early school years, he was a pretty bad, you know, bad looking character. And uh, he was mocked uh, viciously um, through his grade school years and into junior high. And uh, did nothing about it really until one day he had a paint. He was a good painter. He had a painting that he would made of his mother and was the kids were following him home from school and mocking him and all that. And one kid turn, took the, the painting out of his hands and tore it up. And he went home and his father said to him, look, you know, uh, from now on, don't, don't, don't take it. Uh, if they do something to you, hit them. And it was like that, turned on a light in charlie's head and he turned he became uh, a fighter i mean my my brother knew of the fights and they were very um let's say they went beyond the normal schoolyard fights charlie would smack somebody in the mouth or the head and they went down and he would kick them or grind their face into this into the sand so he soon gained a reputation as a very fearsome cruel fighter and he kind of lived in that reputation uh it it gave him it gave him a personality gave him an identity but his fiction his his fantasy was always to go out he he had no desire to live on a a full life at all he he figured it was going to be a lousy life he was going to be a garbage man he would never get better than that he couldn't he wouldn't make it through high school probably so he had this fantasy which he'd always kind of had in one form or another of being an outlaw and uh having an outlaw gang and getting into, you know, getting into it with the, with the sheriff and having a big shootout and going out in a blaze of glory. He's, he he's described it in, in detail and what he needed to do was to move from his reality into the fantasy. And that's eventually what he did. What his fantasy was is what he brought into reality. The one thing he needed to make the fantasy work was to have a girl at his side, Every cowboy, you know, has to have has to have a girl as they go through the uh, the living of being a, being an outlaw. Mm. And Carol fit that perfectly. She was young, she was cute, she was kind of mouthy herself. And his goal really was to show that she he would he would kill for her mm. and die for her. And this this is pretty clear. And so. That, that sets him that that sets him up um, for the for the whole in, in, in my view. Now this is is not the common understanding of Charlie's motivation in this. I'm it's, it's mine and I'm pretty clear I've had it looked at by people. and I think he he was willing if he could go out in a blaze of glory, he was willing to do it next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not resist the electric chair. He was happy to go out. He thought this will make me famous. The only regret he had, and Bruce Springsteen sung about it, was that he didn't have Carol sitting on his lap when he threw the switch. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That was that was a comment he made, right?
0: Something yeah, like, it, there's okay. a great it was a great debate about who actually said that. Oh, okay. Um, Some people said his father said it. Some people said his lawyer said it. I'm convinced he said it, but he didn't say pretty baby on my lap. He said, I'll be happy to go to the chair if I can have Carol on my lap. Springsteen was the one who changed it to pretty baby.
1: Yeah, more romantic that way. (laughs) I guess.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's only one glitch in his, you know, going out in a blaze of a glory thing. It did culminate in that because of on that road, you know, that whole scene on the road where he's in Wyoming, he's now been, you know, spotted and there's this chase that there's a little bit of a shootout, whatever, but he gave himself up. So if you're going to go out in a blaze of glory, doesn't mean you go out In the blaze of the gold, that was the only thing that I always thought, like, well, wait a minute. He didn't do what he, you know, his whole fantasy, he basically cut that off at the knees because he did it. He gave himself up. He
0: explained that by saying he was out of ammunition. And he told the cops, and who knows if it's true or not, he told the cops when they got him, if I'd have had ammunition, we would have, have shot you. We would have shot this thing out. And the fact was, they did... They did uh, establish that he was out of ammunition, but yeah. that, I mean, still, he could have pointed waited until he was shot to death. Yeah, you know? you
1: pointed the gun at them. They don't know he's out of ammunition. He's the only one. this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, because he was alive, we get we have all of those photographs of him looking like this outlaw, right? While well, being taken yeah. in, you know, bloody and handcuffed, and you know, with the, the cigarette and his, and his between his fingers, and then the, the trial, and, and then of course the execution. I mean, talk about if he really wanted to make a name for himself, that's that's something if you're an outlaw. Right. You're you're executed. And that's that's huge. Now, do you know what his, you said? He didn't oppose it at all. Was he like Gary Gilmore, like a let's do it kind of attitude about going to the electric chair? Because it seems like that would be a pretty terrifying prospect.
0: He you know, the thing he feared was not the electric chair. The thing he feared was being classified as insane, uh and living and living out in a living his life out in a hospital but he fought his lawyers introduced an insanity defense over his objection mm-hmm. he and his family fought the insanity defense for one reason he said nobody remembers a crazy man mm-hmm. and if he had to pick between the two of them he would have definitely t- chosen the electric chair because that was a blaze of glory but insanity that's got no that's got no glory to it that right. just means you're screwed up, you know, in the in the terms of the day. You're 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 crazy. And he didn't want to go out crazy. It'd be much better to go out under the electrical charge.
1: That's pretty amazing that you you're more concerned about the idea of people thinking about you as crazy, but not the fact that you were this this brutal murderer that killed, you know, men, women and children, you know. But I think To understand him a little bit more, you get a little bit more inside, you know, his head, his his words, you know, everything that you were able to put together. And I think it does give us a different uh, perspective of this case, which um, I really appreciated. But I wanted to ask you one last question. So was there anything that you found while researching this book that took you by surprise? Because like you said, you grew up in the area, you had heard the stories. And I I was going to say something about that, too, because I have a case on my mind that I want to write a book about that was from my hometown, which is a very small town here in, in the in San Francisco Bay Area. But hmm. um, I know that that goes two ways. One way is that it's good because you, you can picture it. You can see it. You know the feel, you know how it looks, everything to be able to set that story. But also, it can also maybe... I don't know, it's so local, it may, you know, kind of prejudice you to some things, or maybe, maybe not prejudice, but come at it in, in a certain, you know, vein, like you already have these ideas about it. So I just wanted to ask that. So while researching the book, was there anything that, you know, kind of was like, wow, that's, that's new to me. I didn't know about that. Or this was surprising to me, or I never thought about that way. And if not that, what do you think that readers will find most surprising about your book, Starkweather?
0: Well, uh, first of all, it's I mean, I like the idea when you read books written by an author who comes from the town, they have a different flavor to them. Absolutely. Um, And it's always a good possibility because not only do you have the inside or you're looking from the inside, but you have ways of describing it, which are going to be unique to your perspective um the bias first of all I did I had no bias going into it um I went away to to prep school and, and then college and law school and um I, I came in as a neutral. And wherever the facts led me was where I was prepared to go. I just wanted it to be proven one way or another, substantial improvement. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going down that path. Uh, the one thing that surprised me didn't really, I mean, that, that shocked me to tell you the truth, didn't really relate to the guilt or innocence of, of Carol. Um, the only evidence against her was Charlie's um, testimony, which is worthless. And, uh, mm-hmm. In a statement that she gave after being interrogated for seven or eight hours, but um, the thing in this whole story that shocked me the, the most was that the the investigators, the law, made a serious mistake early on in the invest. Charlie had killed somebody in late November of 1957, a gas station attendant by the name of Robert Colbert seven weeks later was when he started the spree.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you have seven weeks in there where he's on the loose. Nobody made the connection. There was a connection. And if the connection had been found by the police, Charlie would have been arrested. Ten people would have had their lives to live out. Right. And I can develop I can develop that a little bit. Um, there was a fellow by the name of Robert McClung that worked out at the gas station where Charlie often uh, slept. He got kicked out of his of his flat for not paying his rent. He'd take his car, he'd drive his 49 Ford out to the gas station, spend all night there, sleeping and They got to know Robert McClung, uh, kind of. And so when they were investigating the murder of the gas station attendant, they came across Charlie because the two attendants said, yeah, we got this guy here. They didn't know his name. What so you can see it in the notes? We're, we we got a redheaded guy driving a forty nine Ford uh, that we would like to find. Mm-hmm. Two or three different investigators had they asked Anything? Robert McClellan, <laughs> where does he work? Mm-hmm. Because he Robert McClellan, woke him up every morning at four thirty because he had to go on his brother's garbage route. Mm-hmm. And McClung told him, I woke him up every morning at 4.30 to go to work. Had they said, do you know what he did? He would have said garbage man. Yeah. There were three garbage companies in Lincoln in 1958. They would have found Charlie probably in five minutes. Yeah. And he would have been taken into custody. There were other corroboration and the whole story would really not have happened.
1: Wow. Yeah. And he's pretty recognizable. I don't think it would be that hard to find him. Right? You
0: know, no, the- no and, and Lincoln was a small town. You know, the cops he hadn't been arrested in in photograph, but they knew who he was. He, right. he was a character in town. He, he was a hot rodder and a greaser and all that stuff. And they, you know, they they could have put it together um, if they if they had talked amongst themselves. Because was a lady in a thrift store who said, "Yeah, there was this kid who came in, red hair, short, bow legged, and he was spending all sorts of change." Well, Charlie, you know, ten dollars worth of silver, mm-hmm. which Charlie had got from the gas station. Had they, had they had they ever connected the redhead that was out at the gas station that Robert O'Clung talked about with this lady, they would have put that together, that he was the guy and probably tracked him down.
1: That, that is surprising because it wasn't just like it was a robbery. It was a murder, you know. So why wouldn't you be seriously looking for this person or, you know, and like you said, it seems like you could have connected the dots very easily to find to find him. Yeah, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, you know law enforcement back in those days in small midwestern towns was was pretty crude. Uh, when you look at things that they did and things that they didn't do, I mean, around these horrible crime scenes, there was no there was no uh, tape, no yellow tape, no crime scene tape. People got into the house of the family's murders and took photographs. Just people walking by walked in in the middle of the investigation, walked off with evidence. Uh, it's quite it's quite startling to see but they didn't have any homicides either. They had like one homicide a year. Yeah. So you're not gonna staff for, for fifteen. It was a real kind of a simple situation in that time.
1: Yeah, it's funny because we think about this people that uh, you know, consume these true crime stories as shows and, you know, podcasts and, and read books and everything. And you always think about that when you say, well, wait a minute, what happened to the investigation? How come they didn't do this? How come they didn't do that? But people are thinking sometimes on the bigger term, they're thinking about the police departments in bigger cities, and then they have these whole, you know, homicide division and all this stuff. But a lot of crimes take place in small towns where they don't have those kind of resources. And they might have one person who's, you know, uh, assigned to, to deal with homicide. But whether or not, they're trained or how much they're trained or how many resources they have it can be very limited so we never think about that we always think of oh well wait a minute what where, where was the DNA and where was where was the you know yeah. the fingerprint expert and the, you know whatever and it's not necessary that you have those things you have one person maybe or two who maybe are not that well trained and go in and they have to analyze this whole crime. It would be like me going in, you know, maybe a little bit better than that, but you know, going in and, and trying to look at a, a crime yeah. scene or, or or investigate and, you know, where do you even start? So yeah, so we I think uh it, it's it's interesting to read a book like yours and, and get to the details of it and then say, Oh, wait a minute. Okay, well that makes more sense that, you know, that this happened this way or we don't know about this or here's some conclusions we can come to because you really have to look and drill down at the details. And, of course, as challenging as I'm sure it it was to you know research this case and find the the truth, because there's a lot of, like you said, lore out there about it, um, you know, it had to be a, a big challenge. But I think you've done a fabulous job because there's quite a bit in here that I think will be surprising to readers that they didn't know about this case. And if, you know, they're younger and haven't heard about this case at all, well, then they've got quite a treat to, you know, to learn about it and I'm sure – and they can ask their parents, and they wait. And they're like, wait a minute! You never heard of Ch- what are you talking about? You never heard of Charles Stark or this case? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of new, new, uh, new readers out there. I'm sure that they're going to find this very, very interesting. I know I did, and I thought I knew the case. Well,
0: how, old, how old are you? Old I are you? am.
1: To, I am today. I am 59.
0: <laughs> and did you? When did you first remember hearing about this case? Um,
1: I would say it was probably from the your book in broad daylight to be honest um and that came out what Uh what year did that come out
0: that came out in 89 88 i was gonna say the
1: 80s i believe it was the 80s and yeah i think that's probably when i when i learned about it so that was already what 30 years yeah 30 years wow So
0: it's being it's being passed down, but it's one of these generations. It's going to move into into history, although I thought that about in broad daylight, too, that that killing was going to move into history. Mm -hmm. It's still it's still the, the reverberates today. Yeah, you know. When you go into when you go into that small town, and you go into Lincoln today, and you talk to people in their sixties or seventies, they still have very firm opinions about Carol's guilt to this day, and, they're, and some of them are quite angry about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that to me, you know, it's one of those things that that I never did come to a conclusion about it. And and the thing is, was the the first thing was the killing of her family, and especially her baby sister. Like, I'm like, God, that
0: was hard to write. That oh, was God. terrible. It to was write. horrible.
1: And I thought, no, I can't see her being there. I I don't think she was there. And I don't think after knowing that, if she did, you know, did know about it, I mean, th- at some point she had to know about it. Oh, I know there was one last question. Yes. One last question I was going to ask you. I know that early on, everybody thought Carol was probably a victim too, because she was just gone, right? Yeah. When did people start to think, well, Carol's, guilty too how far into Mm -hmm. this you know did did, did people start to change their opinions about her
0: very very early the the da the county attorney and the police chief were convinced early on that she was that she was involved and Mm -hmm. i i think that that what led them to to conclude that was that charlie and carol spent five days in the house Mm -hmm. With the bodies in the back in in some sheds behind the house, frozen, mm-hmm. and that because of that, that Carol stayed there and kind of you know hung out with Charlie before they fled. They figured that she was into it, but when he was when she was arrested in Wyoming, they had already filed two 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 murder charges against her. So wow. they they were convinced early on, and they they stuck with it to the. And as just as an aside. If she had been acquitted of the charge that she was convicted of, they had they had nine other murders ready to go. Mm. They were going to go through them one after another till they got her.
1: Wow, that's surprising because of her, you know, that she was a female and also her age. That right away that they they pegged her as being complicit. But I think you talk about that a little bit in the book too, just the perception of her, you know, coming from say right. the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing, or you know, however you want to right. phrase it. Yeah, there's definitely that, that little bit of a bias there. Like, okay, if she had been, um, you know, like Carol King, you know, a, a girl like Carol King, one of the victims, it probably would have been different. You know, um, she was, you know, this wholesome girl, yeah, absolutely. I guess, or it's a different yeah. perception, you know, and we still see that today. We still see that today, the way that people are perceived, even when they're victims, it depends on how people decide what kind of, what kind of person they are. What kind of life they live,
0: and what ties into that is the class that they're in. That's what mm-hmm. was new to me. Um, the the economic class yes. that that they're in affects the way they're perceived. And when you have a girl who is from basically a poor kind of uh, area of town, they, what they would call white trash, she's she's in a bad place to start with. You know, their their perception of her in those days was was not good. Was not good to start with. And they kind of piled on her because they figured, well, she had to be having sex with Charlie. And it kind of kept on going from there. But a lot, but kind of the basis of it was both her sex and her class, which was interesting.
1: Right. And definitely people have to remember the times. It was 1958. So, you know, a female in 1958, you have to be. You know, a certain way traditionally, especially a girl that that age. You know, you don't smoke, you don't swear, you don't have sex, you don't you know all those kind of things. Um, yeah. So yeah, it gives the people you know a lot to to decide. Well, you know, she she had to be part of this or whatever. But yeah, it's interesting to to read this because now you can maybe pull that apart in in light of today and light of her life and uh, and then decide, you know, what do, what do you think? What do you believe? So that's very interesting. I could talk to you all day about this. I just find this so fascinating, just, just the, the, the human aspect of it and just the, the psychology behind it and motivations and all that stuff. But I just want to thank you once again for being on the show. And I definitely recommend the book. It's out now. I mean, I had a copy, so I got to read it. But I, and it's out now, so listeners can find it. And also, I will put a link to your website. But I'm sure the book is out everywhere correct
0: correct yeah it's it it better be at this point <laughs> hey so is this really your, is this really your birthday
1: yes today's my birthday december
0: 5th well happy birthday <laughs>
1: oh thank you i appreciate that Come from one of my favorite authors that made my day thank you so much <laughs> Well, so um thanks for having me on your show yeah thank you so much and uh, you know uh, all the best with the book i'm sure it's going to do fabulous i'm reading it now I, I haven't quite finished it but i definitely am into it and like i said highly recommend it so thank you once again it was an honor and a pleasure to talk to you and uh good luck in any future endeavors and, and with this book for sure thank you very much i okay.
0: enjoyed talking to you i you really too. did
1: Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, author Harry McLean, for his insights into this fascinating true crime case from history. You can purchase Starkweather at all major bookstores on amazon.com and through Harry's website, harrymclean.com. It is also available in digital form and as an audiobook. Links are in the show notes. If you'd like to listen to my episode about this case, you can find it in Season 1, Episode 32, Sweetheart Killers, Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate. There's one more episode of Once Upon a Crime before we close 2023. Next week, catch episode number 307, where I'll give my 2023 true crime wrap-up. What cases caught my attention the most this year? What milestones did Once Upon a Crime reach in 2023? And what were the true crime stories your other favorite podcasters were obsessed with this year? Find out next week on Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez-Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.